0: Hi, my name is Monica, and I am 25 years old. I was admitted to hospital when I was around 32 weeks pregnant. I had pneumonia and a pleural effusion in my lung, and so breathing was really difficult. I couldn't breathe, I couldn't speak, so I had to go to hospital. And I was also diagnosed with a pregnancy-related liver failure. So my daughter had to be delivered six weeks prematurely because of my failing liver. We didn't know about the tumor then. Two days after her delivery, I was sent for a CT scan so that they could check the condition of my lung. And they discovered a 15 centimeter mass in my lung, in my right lung. I'll never forget the day the doctor came in. My thoracic surgeon, he delivered the bad news.
1: That was Monica DeSantos, a very courageous Investec woman who is telling her story as part of Investec Life's latest women's health campaign. Through sharing these stories, the campaign aims to highlight information and insights that will help women make informed decisions about their health. My name is Ingrid Booth, and I'm part of the digital content team at Investec. This is the second podcast in a three-part series. The first dealt with dispelling myths around breast cancer. Today's podcast looks at lung cancer in women and the third episode will shine a light on liver cancer, both topics that don't get nearly as much airtime as breast cancer. We've brought in renowned oncologist Professor Georgia Demetrio to talk us through the medical side of the disease and address issues like does vaping cause lung cancer and why a simple pill can now be used in place of chemotherapy to treat certain types of the cancer. Clinical psychologist Grant Statham from Maureen Kark & Associates also tackles the emotional side of a diagnosis and why a positive attitude can significantly improve a person's experience of cancer and indeed their prognosis. And finally, Sinan Tlaantla Zama, Investec Life Head Product Actuary, talks about what insurance cover is available to ensure you get the best possible treatment. If you found this podcast insightful, please subscribe to our channel and have a listen to part one of this series. But back to today's podcast. Monica was only 23 when she was diagnosed with lung cancer. She was healthy and fit and did not smoke. Oncologist Professor Georgia Demetrio explains that more than two-thirds of non-smokers with lung cancer are women, and most of them have a type of cancer called adenocarcinoma.
2: We need to firstly, before we go anywhere else, is take away the blame game from lung cancer because so often it is like, oh, you smoked, and and yes, there are certain types of lung cancer that are more common in smokers, but not every patient who gets lung cancer is a smoker. In fact, in patients who are female and non-smokers, adenocarcinoma of the lung is probably the most common of the lung cancers that occur, and. In a strange way, it's also one of the lung cancers that we often have a lot more treatments for. You know, if someone's going for a routine chest x-ray, an insurance medical, you know, for whatever reason changing, jobs moving country, they go for for a medical, they sometimes pick up small little lesions when they are tiny and those ones can be cured because they can be cut out and that's the end of that. And that's always the cancers I like, the ones that we pick up by screening or we pick up when they're really tiny. But in the ones which aren't picked up early, where we do need to then just try and reduce size, hold back, rein in, for the ones that are non-smokers, often a tablet is the thing to do. That's really a huge advance in terms of where we're at.
1: As Professor Dimitrio mentioned, the most common type of lung cancer in women is adenocarcinoma. In men, it's squamous cell carcinoma, which produces more symptoms and is easier to detect. I asked Professor Dimitrio whether we as women should therefore be screening ourselves for lung cancer.
2: We don't do screening for lung cancer per se in South Africa. So there is no screening for lung cancer program even in western countries if they do screen with CT scans it's usually your high-risk population which would be the ones who are smokers so you're never going to be screening a young female population because it's just not the demographic and the cost-effectiveness of it is just not there you're going to expose a lot of people to extra radiation that they don't need to be exposed to so The main thing is if you have symptoms, if you've got a cough and it's gone within a week, you know, you've had a cough, you've had an infection, it's okay. But something that sits there and starts to nag a bit, you know, I always say things that sit there for two weeks and get a little bit worse and not better, go and see someone and have it investigated.
1: Vaping is the new smoking. Indeed, the number of vapors has increased rapidly from about 7 million in 2011 to 41 million in 2018. This is according to market research group Euromonitor, who estimate that this number will grow to 55 million by 2021. While e-cigarettes currently carry a fraction of the risk of cigarettes, Professor Demetrio believes that it's only a matter of time before the link with cancer is established.
2: We haven't got a cancer link yet. Okay, and I must say that, but then in the 50s and the 60s, smoking was cool. You know, no one had the cancer link at that point. So we're not going to see a cancer link in a one year, five year, but at 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to see a cancer link potentially. And there is absolutely no way that you can tell me inhaling chemicals into your lungs, which changes them, which causes all sorts of triggers on a cellular level, is not going to be carcinogenic and cause cancer. So we just haven't got that link. And I can't sit here as someone who says, I believe in evidence-based medicine and say to you, yes, because the data is not there, but it's only not there because we haven't had it long enough. Already in the US, they've got at least 14 to 15 cases of respiratory failure and lung trouble related to vaping, and uh, the cancer will follow. It's my belief, and cancer and medicine should never be a religion, it's a, it's a belief that we will get there, we just don't have the evidence we yet. but I would rather just say just don't smoke.
1: One of the most exciting advances in the treatment of lung cancer is the advent of immunotherapy drugs, which harness the body's immune system to fight cancer. Here's Professor Demetrio on how it works and why it signals a move to a time where chemotherapy hopefully won't be needed.
2: So immunotherapy is really where cancer care has moved to and there's a lot of studies currently ongoing that we're involved with which look at immunotherapy in all sorts of cancers. Immunotherapy is where you give medication to almost upramp your own immune system and your white cells to actually attack the cancers, and obviously any medication we have that will do that can potentially also upramp your body's immune system and cause inflammation in other areas of the body. So the immunotherapies have got a very particular side effect profile, you know, there's no hair loss, bonus, there's minimal nausea, bonus, but you can get lung inflammation, liver inflammation, colon inflammation, and a lot of skin rashes that come with the treatment. But we are hopefully moving to a time when we don't need to actually give chemotherapy anymore.
1: While some of the new generation immunotherapy drugs are available in South Africa, they do come with a hefty price tag, says Professor Demetrio.
2: Yeah. So, immunotherapy is registered in South Africa. There's a drug called pembrolizumab, which is available. It is very established in the use in melanoma, malignant melanoma, cancer of the skin. In lung cancer, it is a registered indication, but those Registered indications are expanding quite quickly. And in lymphomas, and every two months or three months, we've got the American FDA approving immunotherapy in another cancer or in another indication. So, really, a very exciting time to be treating patients because the more options you have, the better off your patients are, wow. the better the survival. So, it's unfortunately also comes at a huge cost. All our new drugs come in at Silly numbers, and that becomes a challenge then from a funder point of view to fund treatments.
1: And it's not only the new age treatments that are expensive. As a single mum, Monica experienced firsthand the hidden costs of cancer with routine treatments.
0: Thankfully, I was covered from a medical aid perspective, but unfortunately not from a life perspective. Medical costs were quite high, and the medical bills were quite extreme. I think we paid out of our own pockets, in addition to the medical aid, about 60,000 Rand for the blood tests, because you go for weekly blood tests, you go for scans all the time. I've had every single scan known to man. So those scans you have to pay for out of your own. So it really, it did work out to quite a lot. It was a very expensive experience.
1: I read a Sunday Times article that referred to the cost of cancer being a debt sentence. I asked student Lantlin Zama from Investec Life what insurance is available to alleviate the financial stress that comes with a diagnosis. Here he explains how severe illness cover can step in to pay for what medical aid or gap cover don't.
3: So with a severeness cover, the beauty of it is that it pays out anything between 250000 to up to $10 million, and then gives you and your treating doctor a flexibility to actually structure your treatment regime or treatment plan to ensure effective and success in terms of the treatment of the cancer. That treatment can vary from anything to new generation type of immunotherapy drugs and those can cost easily over a million in South Africa. So that alone, let alone the consultations and surgery that may also be needed or chemo.
1: Severe illness cover is a lump sum cover that is triggered on diagnosis and is paid directly to the client to spend on whatever you need, from treatment to support at home, says Sinan Klantla.
3: The great thing about severe illness cover is that it's non-prescriptive at all. So the payout that you get, it's really up to you as a client to decide how you use it. Some clients, especially if you're a parent, you can use it to hire an au pair to, to help you look after your kids. You can hire a home nurse to look after you. you can, so it's really a supportive mechanism to ensure it protects you and your family and really protect your finances.
1: Of course, not all cover is created equal. So I asked lawyer what questions one should ask when looking for the best severe illness cover.
3: The fact is, in South Africa especially, we've got a lot of Variations in the severeness cover it 's unlike life cover where more or less of the same, no matter where you go, but with surveillance cover, the, the products are structured quite differently and If you look at the old types of products, they all cover for the most advanced cancers, so it must be at least a stage one cancer for the payout. While the newer products like the Investec Life Civilness uh, cover, it does look at the early stage cancers because that's where we're seeing also the claims coming through and you do get the payout in that instance. So it's very, very important to actually take care to look at the definitions and when the cover would be made. But also I think another point about civilness cover, what is more important is less about the number of conditions that are covered, but which conditions are covered and how they are covered in terms of the definitions. And I mean, lastly, also, obviously, the costs are always uh, important to take into considerations. Uh, the premium is going to pay. But I think the key message there is that you, with severe you'd rather uh, go for comprehensiveness rather than cost effectiveness, just uh, to ensure for safety and for peace of mind.
1: So there are solutions out there to alleviate the financial stress of a diagnosis. But what about dealing with a psychological impact? Here, Monica talks about how her positive attitude got her through her ordeal.
0: What kept me going was I never for one moment thought okay, I'm gonna die. I planned my life. I started planning how I'm gonna get back to gym and get my body back and how I'm going to do all these things and study. And so I focused on what I want to achieve in life instead of focusing on how bad things are. And I looked at things from a different perspective. Instead of seeing it as the worst thing that could ever happen, I saw it as the best thing that could ever happen to me because I came to so many realizations when I was sick. It's like everything I had become throughout my life was not me. And when I was faced with death, I unbecame all those things and I was forced to reflect and I was forced to draw all my energy inward and discover who I really was as a human being and what my purpose was.
1: I asked clinical psychologist Grant Statham whether a positive outlook, like the one that Monica has adopted, can result in a better prognosis.
4: The research does show that if people can be proactive in sort of reinstituting a sense of control over their process and over their journey and that is hugely influential on positive prognostic factors so really that's about a couple of things firstly it's about paying attention to your intrapsychic processes so your own feelings your own emotions attached, the way that you feel about yourself your identity your resilience and your coping mechanisms it's about paying attention to your social support networks your relationships your family structures and community support networks It's also about considering information pertaining to your diagnosis and being geared up and seeking actively the information that pertains to treatment options, prognosis, side effects and what we can really expect. And also then professional resource and being proactive about seeking out support from those professionals that can be of assistance. And all of those contribute to positive prognostic factors and actually an improved quality of the entire experience as well as an improved quality of life thereafter.
1: A person does not travel a cancer journey on their own. Your loved ones also experience all the ups and downs with you. This is something Monica realised with her son, who was only five when she was diagnosed.
0: So I found that through this experience my son has matured greatly emotionally and psychologically as well. And I was always very open about everything and I explained to him what was going on. I'll never forget the first time I, I started losing my hair. And I got so frustrated because it's like it didn't happen fast enough but I was upset that it was happening, so I took it into my own hands and I just shaved my head. And my son came to me and he told me that I look like a homeless person. (laughs) A homeless man, that's what he said. Children are a lot smarter and resilient than what we think they are. If you're open and honest and you communicate things properly in a way that they'll understand, they actually are put to ease, so honest communication is always very important.
1: Grant agrees that children are a lot more resilient than we think. As parents, I think that this is a significant challenge for all of us,
4: not only around cancer but around other events as well in life. We're not sure about how much information to give to our children, and we often tend to be quite cautious about just how much we disclose. You know, traditionally, kids see us rather as being a superwoman, supermen, uh, and infallible, and just being you know, um, highly available to them all the time and not ever being compromised. And in a sense, they need that sense of security to be able to navigate their own development and own lives. At some point or other, though, the reality does kick in and kids start to realize developmentally that they Parents are not perfect, and in fact, that we just are susceptible to illness and to disease or distress. Right. Traditionally, kids are quite resilient, though, and they do have a tendency to only take in what they can manage. But I'd always advocate professional support and being able to communicate the message to your children.
1: Monica believed that her traumatic upbringing and lack of self love played a big role in her not seeking medical help sooner. Her message to other women is to love yourself enough to go for regular checkups and to listen to your body.
0: I would definitely recommend getting checkups done because I left things until the very last. And it all comes back down to self-love. If you truly love yourself, you will do what's best for yourself. And at the time I didn't, so I didn't really care. But now that I've really found myself, I really do strongly advise that people go for these checkups. And if you feel something is wrong, always trust your instincts. Thank you for
1: listening to this Investic Focus podcast. Please take the time to rate this conversation and to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for part three of our Investic Life podcast series where we speak to another inspirational young woman who has survived liver cancer. We find out from experts why sub-Saharan Africa has one of the highest incidence rates of this disease in the world.